Over the course of 14 years, more than 40,000 Canadian soldiers served in Afghanistan. Almost 160 lost their lives. Now in 2021, many of these Canadian Afghan veterans are fighting a different fight. They are fighting to bring the same Afghan interpreters who helped them with their mission in Afghanistan to safety in Canada. With the Taliban now governing and controlling most of the country, the Afghan interpreters who helped coalition forces are in grave danger of facing retribution. This is the True to the Story podcast, The Interpreters. I talk to a lot of different people for this podcast. When you send emails out asking people to come on the show, it's usually political figures you think won't reply. However, when I reached out to Marcus Polowski's office, Member of Parliament for Thunder Bay, Rainy River for the Liberal Party, I was shocked when I received an enthusiastic yes from his office. I talked to MP Polowski for a half an hour. It's a rarity to get so much time with a politician. He told me that the issue of the interpreters was something that he inherited and it became apparent last fall that there was an urgency to act on this issue. It became apparent to us, um, at least last fall, that the Taliban were advancing, that these people were in further danger, that there was some urgency to the situation. Uh, We got a couple more people, and at that stage I decided, well, if if I'm going to advocate for for a couple of people, I might as well advocate for all of them. So <laughs> we, we started to collect um, people and, and through our getting connected with the Afri- Afghan Interpreters Association, uh, Wendy's group, um, we got a whole bunch more names and it, it's continued to snowball. So MP Palowski also told me there was actually two previous programs for interpreters seeking refuge in Canada. They dated back to sometime around 2009 and 2012. Okay, there were there were two pro and, and it is difficult to find this stuff. So we went through the parliamentary library, um, who are is is good at researching, and so there was under the Harper government there was a 2009 program. Um, and this required the criteria for using this program. The applicant must have worked at least 12 cumulative months in Kandahar in support of a Canadian mission. And, and this was one of the problem areas. The applicant must be able to demonstrate that they face individualized and extraordinary risk or have suffered serious injury as a result of their work with the Canadian government. So the individualized risk turned out to be a, a bit of a burden in in showing, because, I mean, everyone in Afghanistan is probably at risk, so you had to have shown a, a, a greater risk. Now, the 2012 program um, was limited to those individuals who submitted referral forms from the 2009 public policy um, program, but hadn't been admitted. Um, another problem with the 2009 program is um, it had to be consecutive months starting October 2007. Now, some people, like one of the guys that that we were originally working with, part of his problem was that he started working with the Canadian forces before that um, 2007 period. So so there were a bunch of problems with, with 
those programs. In total, about 800 people were brought over. From the first few minutes of talking to MP Pulowski, I could tell this was an issue he and his staff were very passionate about. I asked him straight up if he thought we, as Canadians, had a moral obligation to help these interpreters. Oh, absolutely. There's a, there's a moral obligation. and they, they, there's, there's a moral obligation to our country and to us as Canadians to help them because they, in a lot of cases, they wore Canadian uniforms. They were on our side they they helped our people as, as canadians because we were over there as is the canadian army this wasn't this wasn't like the the um a local hockey team going over there this was these were representatives of the canadian government the canadian army and and they helped us and though therefore i think as a nation and as a government um we're morally obliged um to 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 try to support them and ensure that they don't end up dead because of the fact that that that, that they tried to help us so so certainly absolutely there's a, a moral moral obligation uh, i think there's a moral obligation on the part of the west in general the i mean all the allied forces i think i think there was good reason for going in there to begin with but and and we did try to change hearts and minds, but um, I think if in the process we put people in danger, um, I think we're morally obliged to try to help them get out of that danger. As part of this series, I also wanted to talk to an interpreter who made it to Canada some time ago. I thought it would be a good idea to showcase a multitude of experiences. I was put in touch with James, who now lives in BC. James started working with the US Armed Forces in the mountainous Herat province. He was a laborer at the airfield. This gave him the opportunity to practice his English. And as he got better at it, he decided he wanted to be an interpreter. In 2007 or 2008, he got his wish working as an interpreter with the Canadian military. So uh, the interpreter's responsibility were, you know, like, like I would talk about my own job. Like I joined this, uh, they, they, this team, they were called uh, Omelet, and then there was another team they were calling Pomlet. Like the Omelet job was to train the Afghan National Army, and and then at the same time uh, we were uh, we were going out for the operations, for for patrols, for checkpoints as well, because uh, we were giving training to the Afghan National Army. And then, yeah, and then also we were going out as well, like uh, the firebase where we were staying uh, with uh, uh, Canadian team members uh, that uh, uh, in, in daily jobs, we were giving trainings, we were going out for a patrol like uh, to, to, to observe the area and uh, and having checkpoints outside the, the firebase. So, yeah, these were, these were the duties, like uh, a translator's, we're doing like uh, the papers translations and and in the documents translations, uh, translating from locals to 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 English and then from English to locals. Uh, you know, it's this was the the duties that we were doing every day. Every day we were going out. We had a fire uh, gunfire shots and, and and there was people getting were, were getting hurts and. 
and a lot of people died, you know, like, yeah, this was like a normal thing. It's, it was really dangerous. Like we were doing it every day. It was like every minute was like, you were like, probably you're going to come back to the base alive or not. Like you were just not counting on that day. So, you know, it was, it was really dangerous. Then, in 2010, something happened to James that would ultimately shift his life and make him decide to leave Afghanistan with his family. So, you know what happened to me on uh, on, on 2010, uh, the, 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 the terrorist the Taliban killed my parents, you know. So, uh, I had to go back and forth to my work and home, you know, like, it was kind of tough situation for me and... You know, I have, uh, I, I had a little uh, two brothers, and, and also I was married at that, at that time, so, uh, and, uh, you know, so I had to go home and come back, and, you know, back and forth, like, it was hard for me to get to the job site, and, and then if there was something at home, so I had to go home, like, as there was no one at home to take care of my, my little brothers, and, you know, like, my wife, and, and, and all those kind of things. So I, I had to stop my my job with the with the Canadian forces. So yeah, that's why. And and after the, after a few months, um, they pulled over and, and no one was there. So you know, like I, I I had to go home like earlier. Then it wasn't only for my own safety; it was for my own family. Uh, you know, like I had to take my my wife and my son somewhere hide. You know, like I hide them there somewhere in Afghanistan by that time when I uh, my when I left Afghanistan yeah it was uh, you know Taliban were looking for me everywhere you know they were saying you've been working for these guys for a while not even like they were not even talking about that I've been working with the Canadians they've been talking like you've been working with the coalition forces they were they were saying like you have to come in and tell us and explain us you know a lot of things but, you know, I, I knew it. If I, 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 I go there and, and I, if they get me, you know, they will just cut my head and that's it. So I had, I had no no other other way to do, you know, like, so I had to escape from Afghanistan and just walk to Europe, you know, like like other uh, refugees. I, I, I walked from Afghanistan to, to, to Germany, you know, like that's because my life was at risk. That's right. James walked from Afghanistan to Germany. I asked him how he managed to do this. He told me he did whatever he could, whether it was hitching a ride on a train or walking for what seemed like an eternity. He needed to get somewhere safe. It would take several years before James would get his paperwork approved and get his visa to make it to Canada. This finally happened in 2016. This is a theme I've seen with a lot of the interpreters I've talked with. It takes a really long time to get the paperwork together, and even then, you're not guaranteed to get a visa. But for James, the wait was worth it. He says he absolutely loves Canada. Well, it's it's fantastic. It's great, you know? Like, I have a chance to, to just... I'm, I'm working every day, you know? Like, I, my, my son is in, in grade five right now. He is learning. He is living, like... He's growing like a really Canadian. <laughs> so I, I'm enjoying, you know, like I, I really love this country. I, and, and I appreciate what this country give, it, give to me, you know, and I appreciate that the, the people are being nice to me always, you know, and, and, you know, this is a great country. I love it. 
Yes, I'm uh, looking for a better opportunity. You know, like I've been here and there and a lot of companies working and working for a lot of companies. Like I've been working for uh, for a lot of us uh, at the, the Superstore and I've been working uh, uh, for uh, uh, Sobey, Safeway, Walmart, and I've been working into the oil and gas industry in Alberta uh, for, yeah, so... You know, when I came to the country at that time, I was new and I had to do, uh, I had to work hard, you know, to just make myself to stay, to, to stay on my own feet, you know. And then I didn't have a chance to go to school. But after a few years hard working, you know, I think I, I can just uh, start going to school and, you know, to learn something better, you know, like... Um, uh, yeah, I'm thinking to go to school and learn something and just, you know, like to find a better job for my future, you know. So I think I have that ability right now. And after a few years working hard in the two jobs, like, you know, I've been in the in the past five years, I've been doing two full time jobs, two full time jobs, no weekends, no week, no vacation, nothing. You know, I've been working really hard. So. I think now I, I just can go to school and try to learn something better and just look for a better opportunity. And, you know, the reason I moved to BC, it's I think it just, uh, I think BC is uh, kind of bigger than Alberta. And, and I think it's a lot of more, more opportunities here. You know, it's, so that's why I moved here. But not every interpreter I've talked to has been so lucky as James to make it to Canada. An Afghan interpreter named Junior, who ended up in the United States in February of 2017, has been trying to get to Canada ever since. Junior started working with the Canadian military in 2004, and in 2006, he was involved in a very serious incident. So I started working for the Kandahar Provincial Reconstruction Team in 2004. Back then, the PRT was run by the United States Army. And in 2005, the Canadian forces took over. And so we continued our work with the Canadian military in the PRT. In 2006, May 24th, I got shot. I lost both legs uh, in Penjway districts on duty. I was uh, riding in the back seat of the G-Wagon, the Mercedes uh, G-Wagons, the SUVs. That's the only armored vehicles uh, they had back then. And so I was sitting in the back seat um, and I got shot. They had a medical, uh, a medics, uh, a medic uh, on site and who applied uh, three tourniquets on each uh, one of my legs. Uh, the medic uh, lost his life later in September or October in a different mission. Despite being heavily wounded and losing the ability to walk, Junior continued working as an interpreter until 2011, when he says he was abruptly let go by the Canadian team. So when I was in the PRT before 23rd uh, February 2011, I had all my documents in place and I was wait, waiting to submit my passports. But when, I, when they fired me uh, and then I tried to get into the to submit my passport, they said they rejected my visa. 
and after that um uh, so when they uh, denied my visas um i so i just kind of had no any other options so i continued my work with the us and then i had a uh, i was contacted by one of the journalists uh graham smith back then he was working for global mail and he told me i asked him if he could do anything and then he sent an email or i think he wrote a story about me and then i had an email from islamabad uh, the embassy of canada in islamabad pakistan that my case is reopened i can continue my case again they have it's still open and then a month later they sent me another email they said your visa got denied and then couple months later they sent me another email they said the case is back open and then they asked me to come to islamabad and i said i cannot come to islamabad it's pakistan one thing i have a disability second and then i said i would do my interviews in kabul they did not agree to it and then so to my dismay i couldn't just go to islamabad they closed my case again so it's uh, it's kind of on and off thing i certainly don't understand why it's happening uh, who is in that office who rejects and closes and opens the case and signed as pro- a kind of sporadical He ended up applying for a U.S. visa, and it was approved. He now resides in the U.S., and despite being safe in North America, he really wants to come to Canada to be closer to his Canadian brethren. Junior told me he's tried to come to Canada on multiple occasions to attend a bike ride for the medic that was killed shortly after saving his life, but he's been denied entry into Canada every time. It baffles him. He says he doesn't know why he's not allowed to come to Canada even for a visit. Yeah, it's uh the the bike ride is called Boomer's Legacy. Uh it's uh Maureen, Maureen is the mother of uh, James 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 Boomer or James Eichelin Boom. Uh he was a medic. And he was uh he was he was killed in a suicide bomber and he was burned in that vehicle actually. and uh so they have this bike ride organized every year it was devastating for her she was crying out loud why the government did not approve my ita she knew i was coming back all the soldiers waiting for me at the airport knew i was coming back but the government says no frustrated yeah i'm i'm confused actually not really angry i'm confused if i have buddies who came from afghanistan applied for they traveled to the to Canada and then they had their electronic travel authorization approved within seconds i applied for it i wanted to attend the bike ride um i went to i traveled all the way from california to washington dc in early 2020 january 2020 to for the interview for an eta tra- electronic travel authorization the lady asked me questions i said i just wanted to go take the bike ride i did not want to stay there if i wanted to stay away if i want to stay in canada and and and, and cheat and only say okay give me that authorization i'm trying to go to the bike ride but then i want to stay there i will cross this border i promised them and i promise you i'll cross that border 
but I don't want to do that. I don't want to just cross the border and show up in, in Canada. I want everybody to, I want them to realize that this is what I have earned. I just don't want to, you know, somewhat ruin what I've done so far. But I'm confused, actually. Why is it happening? Junior's family is still stuck in Kabul. He still hopes to get to Canada one day and get his family to safety, too. I spoke to him recently, and he said he's very frustrated at the speed of which his family is being evacuated. Next time on the final episode of the True to the Story podcast, The Interpreters. My weekend was full of IDs, and even you can talk to with my mentor that one day we, we were hit by an ID when we were going to a, a local meeting, and we had a meeting with the locals, so we got hit by an ID and pop-up shots, we were getting pop-up shots, and also we had uh, ambushes from the enemy. So it wasn't in a safe place uh, to work over there and to go on missions over there. And especially when I was going out with the Americans, with the Canadian forces. So they were like, we, we were hitting a lot of uh, uh, shots from the people, from the enemy. We, we had a lot of ambushes from the enemies. So basically the idea was a big main threat for us. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support the show on a monthly basis, you can stop by my Patreon page. Or, if you want to make a one-time contribution, you can buy me a coffee. Both are linked in the description. I'm donating 25% of all the funds I receive to both the Veterans Transition Network and the Afghan-Canadian Interpreters. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the last episode of True to the Story, The Interpreters. <laughs>